Hey, I want to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at about 15 verses there, more or less. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. If you happen to have the Bible app, are you familiar with the Version Bible app? If you open that up and you click on the menu and look for an event near you, you'll find uh, one uh, nearby called Kermansville Alliance, and that will have the scripture on it and a brief uh, outline as well. I just got to tell you this morning, this is my third run at this sermon. That doesn't mean I've tried preaching it three times. <clears throat> what it means is I wrote three sermons this week. And uh, <laughs> I hate it when that happens. My, I, my, it was not a good week to be Steve Shields' computer. You know, I didn't punch it in a monitor, but I wanted to. And I didn't slap it on the keyboard, but I really wanted to. What I did, just did, I didn't make eye contact with it for as long as I could. It was making me crazy that nothing was coming out the way I felt God wanted to it wanted it to. And it really wasn't the computer's fault. It was my fault. I was struggling to get my thoughts together. And even though I begin my sermon early in the week, I actually wrote one, didn't like it, wrote another. That was just really even worse. And I began this one yesterday morning and I finished it last night at eight o'clock. So this is the closest thing to what pastors fondly refer to as a Saturday night special sermon that you'll get from me, a midnight special. I didn't go to midnight, but uh, I was writing it at eight o'clock in the evening. And I'm really pleased with it. Uh, And that doesn't matter if I am. I think God's pleased with it. And I think it can be meaningful to you and helpful to you. I feel like this is what God has led me to present to you. We're going to be looking at something called the fourfold gospel. The gentleman who you see on the screen there Um, If you take a look at him, especially Thursday night guys, take a look at that guy. He's sitting around a fire with about 20 other guys, and he's on his fourth hot dog right now. That's not accurate. That is Dr. Albert Benjamin Simpson. He lived 100 years ago. He was a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, and uh, he found that he wanted to move beyond those limitations of his pastorate in New York City. And so he moved forward into a ministry that uh, helped him to reach others for Christ. And along the way, he established little prayer groups here, there, and everywhere. And some of those prayer groups became gatherings of Christians, which is what a church is, and they became alliance churches. Um, That's kind of a neat thing. I often say, and and I've said it before, that uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance was purpose-driven before Rick Warren was born because his purpose was to reach people for Christ. And those groups, as he was speaking with them and writing and so on, he, he developed kind of a fourfold gospel, four things he felt um, that really say what we're about. Four emphases, you could call them. The first is Jesus is our savior. The second, Jesus is our sanctifier. Jesus is our healer. And Jesus is our coming king. And that's really the heartbeat of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And anytime I put a Uh, Dr. Simpson's picture up or even quote Dr. Simpson. Uh, I often think of something that a gentleman named Merle in my first church said. He said, we talk a lot about Dr. Simpson. The whole guy spent his time talking about Jesus. Why don't we just talk about Jesus? So we'll do that. Uh, I want to talk to you today about the fourfold gospel. I want to talk to you about Jesus is our savior. The first of these, uh, these key points or these emphases. I'm going to be speaking to you from Ephesians chapter one. We're going to be looking at verse three. And following that, I'm going to read just a few verses to get us started. So follow along if you would. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in Ephesus, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption 
through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Man, I just want to keep reading, but we'll get to the rest of this shortly. What I want to speak to you about today is what it means to be saved. And the first thing that I see this text is saying, and by the way, I could probably pull 20 things out of this text. You're in luck. I'm only going to give five of them today. But one of the first things I notice in here is that being saved means being blessed. Look at verse three again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Think of the language there. Blessed us in the heavenly realms spiritual blessings in Christ, in Christ. Now, as you read that, you realize the blessing is actually beyond this world. We have blessings in this world. You could say earthly blessings that come from God. I have a nice house, so I say, God has blessed me with a nice home. I can afford two cars. So I say, God has blessed me to be able to afford two cars and put gasoline in them. I I have good kids, and I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you or not, but I have four grandkids. I think I mentioned that a lot. Yeah. So I say, God has blessed me. But being saved means being blessed beyond this world, beyond the things you have here and there. It's more than driving a nice car. It's more than even being healthy. It's more than having a good job. It's a blessing in the, quote, heavenly realms And that, my friend, is more, not less, than earthly blessings. The passage says this blessing lacks nothing. It says every spiritual blessing in Christ. That means the spiritual blessing of being released from shame. It means the spiritual blessing of not having to try this yourself, but having someone to help you and enable you to walk the life with Christ. It means the spiritual blessing of of being free from guilt regarding those things that you've done in the past. It includes every good thing you can imagine and more. Being saved means being blessed. What does being saved mean? Being saved means being wanted, not like wanted, dead or alive. You know, on a Western, I love Westerns, right? Wanted, dead or alive. As I read verse four, I get the feeling that you have been wanted for a long time. The beginning of verse four says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And I kind of get this picture and just let me kind of throw it out there of God saying to you, hey, we've uh, been looking for you for a long time. You are just the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that we want. I hear the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying that. Now, of course, God doesn't wait. He doesn't have to wait because he exists outside of time. He doesn't wait like you and I do. But to the saved, he says, I want you. I chose you from eternity past. I want you today. I wanted you back then. And I will always want you. And I don't think it's possible for us to grasp the significance of how a God who lacks nothing at all decides he will want and chooses you and me. It's absolutely remarkable. The text says he wants you because you, the you who he created you to be, bring him pleasure. You're wanted because God finds pleasure in you. Look at the second part of verse four, just those last two words in the NIV. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ, Jesus Christ 
in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In accordance with his pleasure, the pleasure of his will. That means it was his pleasure to save you. And he finds pleasure in having saved you, and he finds pleasure in you being saved. Pleasure in us. You can almost imagine, and I don't think this is a stretch at all, but you can almost imagine those moments when you're just filled with gratitude for the fact that Jesus paid it all. And you say to him, whether in song or in your prayers or just in the quietness of your heart, or just, you know, just an off-cuff remark, Jesus thank you so much for dying for my sins. And he says, it was my pleasure. And he means it. How in the world does anyone say it was my pleasure to be tortured, to be whipped, to be unjustly accused, to have a thorn of, a, a, a crown of thorns on my head and to be nailed to a cross and hang there until I died? How do you say it's my pleasure? And the answer is because he finds pleasure in you. He finds pleasure in you, the you who he created you to be. <laughs> You're wanted because he finds pleasure in you. That's what being saved means. Ephesians 1 goes on to say that being saved means being redeemed. Look at verse 7 for a moment. It says, In him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You know, the, the old illustration for this was a pop bottle. I guess 100 years ago, before any of us were, were born, that if you bought a Pepsi or a Coke, you could take that bottle in to the store and get a nickel back for it. Okay, honestly, who here remembers doing that? Put your hand up. Yeah, all the over 40s, right? All the over 40s, yeah. They don't do that anymore. That was an illustration that people would say, that's what it means to be redeemed. You are the Coke bottle and God takes you in and gets two pennies for you or a nickel now. What a corny illustration, right? It's actually a very cheap and lame illustration because the idea of redemption in Paul's mind has to do with the freeing of slaves. You were a slave and you found no value in being a slave. Frankly, you had very little value at all. And God, by his blood, purchased you, redeemed you from slavery into the glorious freedom he has for you. And now you have, you've been moved from despair to liberation. That is redemption. Okay, Let's see if we can make it a little more real for us. Redemption means taking something that has lost its value and restoring its worth and dignity. It's taking something that is not good and it's making something good from it. Redemption is what someone who does who finds that old car that is just rusted down to the frame and laying on the, on the ground and says, that has next to no value at all, but I'll take it. And then two or three years later, they bring it to the car show and they win first place. Redemption is kind of what my cousin did with my mom's stool that was all busted up and broken because I have mean big brothers who were hitting each other with it probably. I don't know how it got broke, but my cousin repaired it in such a way that mom couldn't tell what was original and what he had made. He took something that had no value or next to no value and he brought great worth from it. God redeems us when he saves us. He takes that which lacks value and he gives it value. Okay, let's get real, real with it. You know, we have a motto at Kerman's Alliance. Real God, real life, real people. 
in my life, I have seen God redeem that which I felt had no value at all any longer because of how badly I had damaged it through neglect. My marriage is an honest example of redemption. When you feel like you have neglected your marriage so thoroughly that it can never have any value again, and then in brokenness you give it to God, and he begins to repair it and restore it and heal it, and then lets you use the lessons that you have learned to help other couples, that's redemption. And God has done it in Laurel's in my life. When you discover that the very brokenness in your life is what God wants to, in a miraculous way, use to help others that you never dreamed you would have opportunity to help, that's redemption. That's redemption. And that is what God does, not just with your marriage. With your entire life, he redeems you. Being saved, it means being redeemed. Being saved, it means being included, even marked. You're marked for inclusion. There's something in store for you that those who have not been saved don't have. Verse 13 says, you've been made part of the whole, part of the family. It begins and says, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. Included. You were included in Christ when you heard the truth, the message of truth. You're not on the outside looking in. You're not someone who doesn't belong. You're not in the airport watching everyone else go to take these fabulous trips. You have your ticket. Your flight is booked. Let's go. You're part of the group. You're part of the family. The text goes on to say that you were marked by the Spirit of God. You were marked and sealed by him. The latter part of verse 13, when you believe, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. Who's the Holy Spirit? It's not what is the Holy Spirit. It's who is the Holy Spirit. Because he's God. We understand that God, one being, exists in three persons. a huge mystery. If you got that figured out, let me know, because I don't understand it. But I know he exists as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit, all at the same time. And none of them is less than the other. They are co-equal. And the Spirit of God marks you if you're saved. He, He puts his seal on you. Nope, he is the seal that is on you. Verse 14 says, you actually have a deposit that promises more. Believers have the Holy Spirit, but he's just the deposit. Verse 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, says, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's think about that word deposit for a minute. Can we do that? If you're selling an automobile and I want it, and I give you a deposit, that gives you the assurance regarding my intention. And really, until I give you that deposit, you don't get very excited because until I actually hand that to you, it's just all talk about buying your car. But when I give you that deposit, it increases your level of expectation. And if the deposit is substantial, you know. That guy's coming through with the rest of the payment. Well, if you're saved, you've been given a pretty big deposit. God himself 
living in you through the Holy Spirit, that's a substantial deposit. And it leaves no doubt the deal is done. The deal is done. But it's even better than that. It's not just that the deal is done. The deposit guarantees that there's something more to come. I mean, nobody says, I'll buy your car. What do you want? You want 20000 for it? Yeah, here's $19,999 deposit. I'll have the rest of it on Monday, right? The deposit is almost always significantly less than the whole price. We have been given something incredible as a deposit. The Spirit of God dwelling inside my being. I cannot imagine what the vehicle is like. I can't imagine what that's like. But it's ours. Because being saved means that you're included, that you've been marked, that you have the deposit. This being saved means you have Jesus. And as you journey on this spiritual life, as you move forward on it, you begin to realize this is maybe the best part. I have Jesus. Because having Jesus changes your heart. Look at verse 15. Paul's writing to these people in Ephesus. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love for all God's people, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, now these are kind of strangers to Paul. And he has never given thanks for them before. And if he just happened to hear about, there's a group of people living in Ephesus and they're, they vary in size from five foot four to six foot three. He wouldn't give thanks for them in his heart. But he gives thanks for them because he has heard how God has changed them. And they have love for the Lord Jesus Christ and love for God's people. He sees the change and he's like, I like seeing that. Jesus. If you're saved, he changes you. I want to tell you a story. I have permission to tell this, by the way. I don't always have permission to tell my stories, but this one I do. Two individuals who come to this church, they're early service people. They come to the early service. They told me a story. The gentleman told me a story. He said to me, Pastor Steve, I've got to tell you, something really neat happened. Um, I saw a, a young woman at church, and then I saw her at Mahaffey Camp, and I hadn't talked to her in years. And she told me this happened at Mahaffey Camp. I didn't understand it happened there. She said to me, hey, it's great seeing you here. And I returned to gesture. It's great seeing you here as well. Probably 20 years apart. I don't know how far. They knew each other casually and had seen people, had seen one another rather at other places. She looked at him and she said, standing at Mahaffey Camp, she said, I bet you never thought you'd see me here or in church on every Sunday. I know, I never thought that you would see me here. And he said, no, I never thought I'd see either one of us here. And they laughed together. And then she replied, I am not the same person I once was. <laughs> and he replied, hallelujah, neither am I. Yeah. You see, if you're saved, you have Jesus, and he changes hearts. He does it all the time. He changes hearts. He give you, gives you wisdom to live by. Paul prays in verse 17, asking God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. You ever look at someone and say, whoa, buddy, that boy needs to know Jesus because he doesn't have an ounce of wisdom. You ever feel that way? Jesus gives you wisdom. You ever look in the mirror and say, boy, he could give me some more. <laughs> yeah. God, give us all the spirit of wisdom for we truly needs it. We truly need it. And having Jesus, it means having hope. Look at verse 18. 
says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the, here it is, hope to which he has called you. Notice Paul isn't saying, I pray that God will give you something that will give you hope. He's saying, I'm praying that God will open your eyes so you see you already have the hope because you're saved. You have the hope, the, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and the incomparably great power for us who believe. I've said before, I think hope is really underrated. I remember as a young, young man, maybe even a teen, reading the love chapter in the Bible and you get down to the end of it. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing, he says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love, he says. I do not argue with the Bible, but if I did, it might be here. The greatest of these is love, indeed. Without love, we would all be lost, right? And, and I can remember as a teen thinking to myself, well, I can understand why faith is great, but I don't get hope. I mean, faith is great, obviously, because Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us. And we trust in that by faith. I get why faith is important, but I don't understand why. Why is hope in that list, that triad? Was the Apostle Paul doing what my wife accuses me of doing, just trying to come up with a third point to fill the time? She doesn't accuse me of doing that in sermons. It's when we're talking. She'll look across the table and say, you don't need a third point, Steve. I know, but it's just a habit. I can't stop it. Is that why he put hope in there? Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Not at all. Hope is incredibly powerful. And Paul prays that the eyes of the Ephesians would be open so they would see the hope to which he has called them and and riches for those who believe and his strong power, his everlasting power, his mighty power that's given to those who believe. I I want you to see that hope. Hope has power. Onlookers saw this in 1981 when Eugene Lang was invited to speak to 61 sixth graders who were graduating from sixth grade to seventh grade in East Harlem in a public school there. 61 of them. He was the commencement speaker for the sixth grade. Lang said, I looked out at that audience, almost entirely black and Hispanic students, wondering what I say to them. He had planned to talk about the old days when he was in that same school. He had planned to say, look how well, and he'd done well for himself. And he planned to say, you work hard, and maybe you will be successful too. That was what he had written up. That was what he prepared. But it occurred to him when he arrived, that is just not, not going to help them. That is not relevant to them. So when he got up, he shot from the hip. You know what I'm talking about? When I do that, you cringe. People say, Pastor, you read your sermons a lot. Yeah, you should see when I don't. But Lang did well when he shot from the hip. (laughs) He talked about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his speech, I Have a Dream. He didn't speak a lot about the speech. He just talked about the title, I Have a Dream. And he said to the students that just like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream, you need to have your own dream. You will die without a dream. You've got to have a dream. And then right there, On impulse, he didn't plan to do this, but on impulse, he gave him a dream. He said, I will give you a substantial scholarship. I will give a substantial scholarship, and he named the dollar amount to every member of this class who is admitted to a four-year college. Every one of you. Students were stunned. The teachers were stunned. The parents were stunned. There's silence. 
And then they just started to clap. Like, wow, really? That much money? He told them, and by the way, it's not just the first year. I'll give it to you for every year you remain in school until you graduate. Listen to what Lang said afterward. He talked about his conversation with the principal right after he gave that speech. When I made the original promise, the principal told me that maybe one or two students would take advantage of my offer. One or two might go to college if they had some kind of a scholarship. It wasn't one or two. It wasn't 10%. It wasn't 15 or 20%. It was 50%. Half those kids. The principal expects one or two if someone helps them. 30 or so went to college. Wow. He didn't just give them money. (laughs) It was important that he did give them money. But the bigger gift he gave them was hope. Hope. And that is what Jesus does for us. He gives you hope in every area of your life. He gives you hope for your children, for your grandchildren. He gives you hope for your marriage. He gives you hope regarding your parents. He gives you hope regarding your job. He gives you hope regarding your eternal reality. That's what being saved does for you. Hmm. Being saved changes everything. Everything about you. It means being blessed, being blessed in ways that your life is changed. It means being wanted, wanted by the God who made you and loves you. It means being redeemed, that the mistakes that you made, that you felt took value from your life, can be used by God to bless others. It means being marked with a deposit. It means having the Spirit of God in you in anticipation of something even greater. And it means having Jesus. It means having Jesus who changes everything about you. If you're a Christian, (laughs) grab onto this with both your hands. We tend to become so accustomed to the good things around us that we forget that we have them. I remember after our children were born, the first substantial trip that my wife took was with her mom. They went to New England, to Vermont, I believe it was, and they did this bed and breakfast thing. It's a really cool idea. You go to a bed and breakfast, spend the night, get up in the morning, have breakfast, leave the keys to your car, walk to the next bed and breakfast through Vermont, And there's your car and your suitcase is in your room and you're there for supper. And then you do that again and again and again. She does that with her mom. She doesn't do that with me. I don't understand. It was the first time she'd ever been away from me that way for that period of time when we had kids. She walked through the door and I hugged her and I said, man, I didn't know how much you did here to bless this family. It happens that way, right? When you're accustomed to something, You don't value it like you should. If you are saved, value these blessings we've just spoken about. Cherish them. Live in them. Walk in them. Grab a hold of them with both hands. They're beautiful things. If you're not saved, you might be asking, so how does one get saved? 
It's not rocket science, okay? Do you hear a voice calling you? That's a real question. If you're not saved, do you hear a voice calling you? If the answer is yes, I hear the voice, then say yes. (laughs) Yes, that's pretty much it. How do I get saved? Do you hear the voice calling you? Yeah, I hear Jesus' voice. Then say yes. Okay, I'll say yes. That's pretty much it. I mean, I could talk about repentance because repentance is part of it. But if you hear the voice, the voice of Jesus, you'll repent. And I can talk about faith because that's a part of it. But if you hear the voice of Jesus, you'll trust him. You'll trust him. So say yes. Jesus, I hear you calling. Here I am. Please save me. I've sinned and I need to be forgiven. I turn to you. I turn away from my selfishness to you and I trust you that for reasons I'll never understand, you died for my sins and I believe that you love me that way. I will follow you. I will turn from myself toward you and I will walk in all of your ways. That's it. Say yes. I want to invite you to do that this morning. So if you're comfortable doing so, please stand with me. And just in the quietness of your own heart, let's bow our hearts and unite our hearts in prayer. Lord Jesus, we unite our hearts together. We're thankful for what you did when you died on the cross. Those of us who have turned our heart toward you and are trusting in you, we want to grab on to all that is ours, the fullness of salvation. We want to grab on to it with all our hearts. Love you with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength. Make it so. For those of us maybe who have really never made a choice to put our trust in you, we hear you calling, Jesus. We hear your name. We hear your voice. We hear our name. We would ask you if you would, please save us. Please save me. I turn to you and I turn away from my sin. I trust in you. I trust that you are a God of love who loved us and gave himself for us. I will follow you. Thank you for saving me. It's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Father, whichever of those two groups we're in, we are so thankful for the blessings you give us. And we do not take them for granted. We will keep them ever before our minds so our hearts will be ever following you. For Christ's sake, amen.